Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Okay, delighted to be welcoming Robert Koch to um, Headliner Radio. How are you, Robert? How are things? Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Amazing. You're telling me you've uh, been in, was it Los Angeles, sorry? And you've, you've moved to the States from Germany. You were a long time Berlin. That's right. Yeah. Resident. I lived um, in Berlin for 13 years, 2000 until 2013. And then in 2013, I relocated to Los Angeles. Cool. Um, yeah. So I'm here since a couple of years already. I'm a big Berlin fan. Which districts did you uh, did you live in while you were there? I lived in Kreuzberg pretty much like all all those 13 years. To be honest, you know, I um, lived close to Paulinke Ufer, if that rings a bell. So like close to Kottbusser Tor, Görlitzer Bahn of that area. That's interesting. Did you see? I understand that in that time Kreuzberg must have shifted quite a lot. Did you experience that? Oh yeah, for in? sure, for sure. I mean, I moved within the building I was staying, actually, so I did move once, which is very un- unusual because people in Berlin actually used to move a lot. I think that's not the case anymore because it's so hard to get a flat. But like mm-hmm. 10 years ago, it was uh, more of a thing that people would like stay in one place for two or three years and then move to another part of the city. But I quite enjoyed Kreuzberg and I just stayed there all the time. Uh, but I did see the change. I mean, it, it clearly became more and more touristy and um more busy in general, you know, which is, I guess, also a good thing for Berlin. You know, it's definitely, it's allure is around, you know, partying and nightclubs and bars and all that. So I've definitely seen a big influx, especially in Kreuzberg, which used to be like a more quiet neighborhood when I moved there. And it just became like party central <laughs> when I left. Yeah, I guess the equivalent in London was, um, there's an area called Shoreditch, which used to be a very poor, deprived area in East London. And then just uh-huh. suddenly, it, it, it was like the first gentrified part of London, basically. Suddenly, all this art appeared on sides of buildings and all these like cafes selling cereal for like five pounds a bowl. Yeah, <laughs> kind of exactly. <laughs> I think it was similar in Kreuzberg, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, 100%. That's exactly what happened um, there. Amazing. But so, yeah, so you're in America now. And um, yeah, I'd love to just ask if you could sort of introduce yourself, how you originally became interested in music and how that eventually became your career would be amazing if right you yeah i mean i played in bands as a teenager um i had piano lessons as a kid i wasn't really interested in that but i did get into uh, drumming when i was like 14 so i was a drummer in a couple of bands and i actually revisited the piano much later and that became like my main instrument although i'm not like a classically trained pianist but it's how i write music mainly that's like the, how i compose but i went from drumming becoming a drummer into um like DJing later in my later teens. That's how when I moved to Berlin, like around 19, um, I I was DJing a lot and um, was actually a a member of the first Red Bull Music Academy that took place in Berlin um, back then. So that exposed me to like more of DJ culture. I was visiting the guys at Hardwax and that played some mastering and, and stuff. So that was a cool time. Um, and through DJing, I got into beat making from beat making. I, became more of a producer and I, um, yeah, just became um, more of a studio person, I guess, you know, and less of a live performer, which I used to be as a drummer. And um, over the years, I um, expanded my music. It became more and more cinematic. I had like a lot of placements on film and TV with my music. And um, in recent um, years, I've also started composing for um, film and television. So, yeah, that's just in a nutshell <laughs> what happened. Mm. Is that one of the uh, inspirations for moving to America? Actually kind of not, embedded not in the so film much. Industry? I mean, I, I started having like these uh, sync placements with pre-existing music when I was still in Berlin. Um, I would just get like these requests for certain TV shows that would want to license my music. And I didn't even know any of these shows back then. <clears throat> this was before I had like a Netflix account or whatever, you know, um, those were like ABC or NBC shows and uh, I didn't know them. I was just like getting the request and um, getting a synopsis, excuse me, about what the show's about and stuff and uh, what the fee would be and stuff. So yeah, that was interesting. But moving to LA was more like a gut feeling decision, to be honest. I was feeling a little tired of Berlin for a while. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I didn't actually move on that feeling. Um, but then in 2013, I had like a breakup. I had like um, 
like a music project that went sour, my, discontinued working with my management at the time. So there was a lot of things that came to an end and, you know, sort of life kicked my ass out of the comfort zone of just like not mm. feeling that happy in Berlin anymore, but not acting on it. So out of a gut feeling decision, I was like, I'm going to move to California because it feels uh, literally just feels like it's something I'm interested in. It's not like rationally something that made sense because I didn't know anybody out there. I had toured here a little bit, so I knew the city, but I didn't really quite get it ever because it's so big. Um, so I just gave it a shot, really. And yeah, seven years later, I'm still here. So it was good to kind of act on the on the gut feeling sometimes, mm. I guess. And it's important to note you're known musically by the music you release under your own name. But um excuse me, of this alter ego, Foam and Sand. Can you just talk us through why you felt you needed to create that distinction, you know, as a side project? And Because um, you recently released Full Circle under Foam and Sand. Did you just feel that didn't fit with what you've released previously under? No, I mean, that's, that's a good question because what happened is in 2020, I put out this album called The Next Billion Years, which was my last Robert Koch uh, studio album. And this is like right when COVID hit, right? So in like May... April, May 2020, the album came out and we had like a, a big uh, tour lined up already with like um, um, philharmonic venues, you know, like philharmonic um, uh, venues that would also enable me to play with an orchestra because it was a, a hybrid electronic orchestral record. So I was actually looking forward to like um, going on tour with an orchestra and none of this happened, of course, you know, COVID hit. And then I was just in my studio, unable to tour and I just started making this ambient music for myself, just like self-soothing stuff with like tape loops and just something that I enjoyed making. And I sort of felt like I wanted to share it right away. I didn't want to wait for another year. You know, how as an artist, sometimes you're like in this schedule of here's an album and now you tour it and then you wait a little bit and you don't want to overtax your audience or the press with like already a new project. So you wait and then the year afterwards you release a new record. And I was kind of like, no, I have this new project. I just kind of want to release it. So I just chose a different name for it. Nobody knew it was me. Uh, I just released it on Instagram with like little animations and short snippets of the songs. And it became its own thing. Like it, it grew as following under the radar without anybody knowing it's me for a while. And I put out a few EPs uh, and singles. And then eventually in 2021, I revealed it, quote unquote, as an official Robert Koch project which also leveraged it some more. So my audience also tapped into it and it became even bigger. But yeah, just like the, the lesson learned for me was to um, not hold back as much, you know, with um, like the typical artists' um, cycles, I guess, you know, of like release, tour, etc. But just like, if, I just felt really liberating putting the music out pretty much like two months or a month after I made it. So I want to keep up that schedule with Form and Sand. It's just like I'm a little less precious about it. You know, it's a little less conceptual. Robert Koch is always um, more curated, I will say. And Form and Sand is literally just like intuitive music that comes up, that feels good, and that I just want to put out, you know, without any restrictions. Amazing. Um, I mean, it's interesting. It feels like you're quite associated with this quote-unquote neoclassical music scene as it's come to be known um how do you feel about do you feel good about that and again feeds back into this whole berlin thing because i think maybe right. not so much maybe not so much now but at one point i feel like anyone wanting to be associated with that scene is literally moving to berlin for example interesting that's no people like that so i guess my way was the other way around because i left berlin um when i signed to monkey town oh, i had left berlin and then monkey town you know like the the guys from mode selector and moderat they signed one of my records, Hypermoment, in 2015. This is shortly after I moved to Los Angeles. And this was a more electronic record. The last song on that album was actually um, leaning in a more, I guess you would call it a neoclassical direction, just because it was like a solo piano piece with like um, textures and like very faint vocals on it. Um, and actually, I haven't done any quote-unquote modern classical or neoclassical music when I was in when I was in Berlin, but in LA, I actually moved in with a violinist and we um, started making music together. Savannah Jolak is her name. And I was just a fly on the wall in some of her sessions when she recorded like a quartet 
uh, and I was just interested in um, in that sound world and that texture more or less, you know. So I was like, I want to incorporate some of that in my electronic music. And uh, we released an album called Particle Fields in 2016, which was also like a hybrid orchestral um, electronic record. Well, not orchestral. It was more like um, chamber, I guess, because it wasn't full orchestra. It was just like eight players. Um, but then in the meantime, what you just described happened in Berlin. So new classical became a thing. And um, when I went back to Berlin, I also met up with um, Felix Grimm, who's um, the manager of Niels Fram and some people. Mm. And it was just like realizing, oh, there's this whole scene um, happening here, which I thought was interesting. But I also realized it's a name nobody really wanted to be associated with. So Neoclassical was already like a bad name. Everybody was like, oh, I'm not Neoclassical or <laughs> whatever. Um, but I honestly was sort of outside of it all the time. I, was, I never really felt I was part of that scene. I realized it existed. And I guess I had musical ties to it just by the fact that I also incorporated um, those kind of sound structures or textures in my sound. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm part of like a modern classical movement or scene ever. I don't ever think I was part of any scene really. It's just like, I'm just like bypassing these and um, clearly I'm not in a vacuum. So things do influence me and I rub off on things, but yeah, I don't really subscribe to any kind of genre or movement ever. Yeah. I just, I often see Robert Koch for fans of Max Richter, John Hopkins and all these names. Right, neoclassical kind of names, but then I listen to your music, and there's you know there's a lot of electronic. Um, even you collaborate with singers a lot, don't you? So there's an almost a small pop element as well in a very pleasing way. So um, it's right, I, right. I understand the connection, but it's not like you're clearly not just a guy at a piano with a creaky stool. Eh? <laughs> no, no. The thing is that I just don't subscribe to like one sound um, mm. for long enough, so people can like pigeonhole me, and I think that sometimes to my detriment because if I would just like stay with one thing um, very focused for a very long time people would people would associate like oh yeah it's that guy that does this one thing um it's just like not what i'm interested in so sometimes it's to my detriment that people are like wait what do you do exactly you do this but then you also do music with vocalists and film music and then there's this like darker electronic piece modular synth driven like to me, it's all just a palette of like colors that I like to paint with, so to speak, you know. So I, I I don't like to limit myself. And with Max Richter, I made a remix for him in 2014, I think. That might be the reason why I'm associated with him through like Spotify algorithm or whatever, how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do appreciate John Hopkins. I met him here in LA at a actual meditation uh, session. We both learned transcendental meditation at the same um, center in LA. and. Um, I like his music for sure. Um, but again, you know, we're all like our own sound universe and sometimes we collide and sometimes, you know, we drift apart. So it's just interesting to observe how that all plays in and out of each other. <laughs> that wow, makes any sense. That's amazing. I'm guessing that was completely unplanned as well that you crossed paths. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we were literally just in a, in, in this kind of, um, course which breaks down um, transcendental meditation um, in terms of how it works and then it introduces you to it and you can make it part of your own practice and we were a small group of like four, four or five people and started chatting and like he's like oh my name's John and um, yeah cool I'm Robert <laughs> you know and then I mean I make music I make music too oh who are you and it's like oh John Hopkins and I didn't know what John Hopkins looked like so it was cool to meet him that way and uh, just like a fun anecdote <laughs> You're honestly it's kind of blowing my mind because you're both artists who combine, you know, electronic music and the neoclassical element. You just completely spontaneously met at a, <laughs> this meditation course, transcendental well, meditation, you say. Yeah, yeah, it it's just funny. seems slightly insanely interesting that it happened that way. Um, that's interesting because he's, I'm sure that influenced the fact his last album was uh, very meditation based as well so that's um and i guess for you full circles are very i don't know if you had meditation in mind but it's such an ambient oh yeah sure well for sure i have a meditation practice that i um ever since i learned it actually at that center um 
withdrawn, if you will. <laughs> mm. um, I have not missed the sitting. I'm, I meditate twice a day. So it's like um, 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. And yeah, I've been keeping it up. It's really um, good for my mental health. And in general, I just like to, before I start working, getting into like this meditative space. And um, sometimes, you know, there's this poet, um, this Rufi poet, um, Kahil Gibran, he spokes in a, speaks in his book the poem the um, prophet about children um, not coming from us but through us you know and I th I think of music like that I think music comes through us rather than from us so like in a meditative way it's sometimes good to sort of remove the ego and just like really just move out of the way and just let music come through you you know so that's that's how I see it that's how I use quote unquote meditation sometimes in my music to just become very present and um, not influenced by anything like thoughts, you know? So, I mean, the whole point of meditation is just like to get off the, the monkey mind, the chatter and all that internal stuff that's going on and just become like really still and present. And that really seems to be very conducive to my music making. The more present I am and the less influenced I am by outside influences and thoughts, which are also just like reacting to, conditioning from the outside you know the more pure and authentic i guess um it feels to me so and then i hope that resonates with people as well and it seems to be the case because people would reach out and um say that their music uh, my music um, is really helpful for them like be it um, through a difficult part of their um life or just in general to connect through meditation or whatever so I'm just happy to see it works that way, you know, because I have that intention when I make music and for some reason it seems to play out and, and, and work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, yeah, like you mentioned, there's mental health is probably the main reason people pursue meditation to a lesser extent, physical health. But yeah, there's clearly um, in the creative community people that wonder if it can help, you know, their creativity. Um, some people probably wonder if it can help their career, which is kind of probably missing the point of <laughs> meditation completely. Mm. But yeah, I'd love to ask how, yeah, how's your music making? How was it before meditation? How's it been since? And yeah, just life in general, I guess. It sounds like you've really reaped the rewards of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I will say that there was more insecurity before and I had insomnia, like back in Berlin, I had like pretty severe insomnia. Mm. Good city I, to have um, insomnia. <laughs> again? Um, good city to have insomnia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it was very conducive. Berger, no, it was the right place to have insomnia, for sure. <laughs> um, but it wasn't like, um, yeah, in the long term, it's not something that's actually very fun to experience, you no, know, because at some point you really need to sleep and your body's just not getting the rest and then you really show up with other health symptoms around that. and. Yeah, so meditation definitely helped with that. But in general, also, in terms of, um, you know, in the music industry, everything is so metric-driven these days. So it's so easy to fall into the trap of, like, comparing yourself to, like, Spotify stream numbers, followers, whatever. Everything is, like, numbers, and it's so so easy to compare, you know. And I think that's what meditation helps me with as well, is I just don't really buy into all that anymore as much. It, it's just, like, I sort of detach from it. I, I still look at it. I still look at my Spotify for artists and like the streaming numbers and whatnot. But I don't really identify with any of it. You know, it, it really has lost a lot of its meaning to me. And that doesn't mean that I'm not engaged and I'm not driven to, you know, also make records that are hopefully successful, but more in the sense of like wanting to reach people rather than reach some other lofty goals that, aren't even mine, essentially. I guess that's what meditation taught me, that a lot of these things that I thought I was chasing, they weren't even my own desires. They were just like desires that were implemented or projected uh, onto me um, from, be it society or parents, peers, whatever, you know? So it's just like slicing through all that and just like seeing what really serves you, what what is actually yours and what isn't yours, you know, in terms of beliefs and like stories you subscribe to about yourself and the world, really. And then just shedding a lot of that stuff, a lot of clutter, you know, a lot of 
uh, accumulation of, of stuff that's really just baggage, energetically speaking, too. So um, I guess all that really um, uh, helped, all, like meditation really helped with all that um, tremendously. And I feel a little more authentic about what I do. Not that what I did before was less authentic, but I think it was more tainted by me trying to achieve something or me trying to be someone or whatever. So I feel like all oh, that is much less the case and it just feels good. It feels lighter, you know, in general. Yeah. Just kind of, I love that Sufi poem quote you mentioned, because it's kind of this, it feeds into this whole thing where often people come up with great creative ideas when they're, I don't know, sort of falling asleep, having a nap or in the shower right. when, they're, when they're not trying. Exactly. <laughs> Cause I think with something like music, it's very difficult to, write great music when you're trying really hard to write great music isn't it um yeah i think you were you, you've been talking about how you're trying to remove your ego from music and you've stopped caring about spotify analytics and all this slightly uh impermanent meaningless stuff, right. <laughs> stuff. Yeah. it's just so crazy because i guess a lot of people when they first get into things like this they're wanting to create something to be remembered by it's a very egoic thing isn't it and then it is uh, you know but then you know, one, one thing that I keep learning um, through meditation and just like through self-development, quote unquote, just like by, you know, reading a lot and um, I guess like diving into my own shadow, so to speak. Um, mm. What I realize is it's, it's, it's less about me. Like I'm, I'm more and more adapting, like kind of a hive mind mentality. So like I'm, I'm trying to see like a bigger picture. What, what am I serving um, other than myself? You know, what's like the big picture? Like who am I contributing to? almost like this kind of hive mind humanity versus, I mean, the biggest problem we're experiencing uh, in general on the planet, I guess it's like the illusion of separation. That we always think we're separate from each other. We're separate from nature, you know, that's how the egoic mind can really thrive, you know, by feeling it's lacking something and it needs to achieve something. It's, It's separate from everyone. So it's always experiencing fear and lack and needs to compensate that by, um, dominance and control. So um, the more you actually let go of that and see the quote-unquote bigger picture, which is um, we're just like an organism, so to speak, you know, with like all the cells in our body, they're just ideally working together to make like the organism work. And I think the same is true for for any kind of system, you know, like um, you know, our planetary system, like um, organic um, nature systems that we're part of just like system theory in a way that where, where the parts really play together to create harmony and like balance versus uh, uh, imbalance and destruction and like disease essentially you know? and, uh, so yeah I mean that sounds all very big and uh, ambitious but it's actually not it's just like really just um, realizing that you are not as important as you think or maybe important but only important in a way that you play a role in a bigger picture. And it's, it's not less, it's kind of fighting for survival, this Darwinistic almost um, strong survives kind of thing. You know, I think life is way more collaborative than it is competitive actually. Yeah. I mean, it's something I sometimes struggle with, like the sort of importance of music, especially I think we live in a society that kind of, whether consciously or not consciously kind of makes out the arts and music aren't, as important as I don't know, you know, business or <laughs> healthcare mm-hmm. or you know, whatever. But um, yeah, what's your? F- it sounds like you've found great meaning through all this in music. I mean, I'm trying to teach myself that perhaps the best thing about music is it doesn't actually have an exact point, and that's the beauty of it. You know, there's that great Alan Watts quote saying about the, yeah, music's not trying to go anywhere, and that's the wonderful thing about it. Otherwise, all the great classical composers would have just written a one chord ending if that was the point to get to the end but Mm -hmm. yeah so it sounds like you've discovered greater purpose in music making through this journey you've been on i think right yeah and it's also um sort of what it attracts you know when you put something out it's almost like the ripples you know you throw like this little stone in in a pond and then the ripples are rippling out and something comes back um, and not in the time when you expect it. It's almost like uh, you're in a big hall and you're clapping your hands and the reverb needs to travel to the end of the ceiling and the walls and then be reflected back to you. It just like takes a certain time for that sound wave to be reflected back. And um, 
that's what I find beautiful to just understand that about music, how that works, but also in a metaphysical way that, you know, you put something out, you don't instantly always get feedback and like um, approval for it. Sometimes it's like years later after you release a piece of music that somebody will out of the blue, like drop you a message saying that this piece of music was really helpful for her or him uh, during a difficult time or your mu music gets used for a, for a film like five years after it's been released, you're like, you almost forgot about that piece. And then that pays rent for like a couple of months for you or whatever, you know, there's all these like nice um, surprising things around that. And I think impatience sort of destroys that sometimes or used to like destroy it for me that I would put out music and be like, now where's the approval? Where's, you know, nobody cares, you know, it's out mm. and so what. <laughs> But I realized like time and space is just like not something to, um, yeah, get so upset about, you know, because they, they have their own rules and, and their own timing. So sometimes it just takes time for something to ripple back to you. And that's just a comforting thought in general for me. So I can just like release music today and not worry about how it does. Let it be out there. And the good thing about digital music, it doesn't have shelf life. So literally people can discover it whenever. And um, yeah, that's mm. just, it's just important for me to make it. You know, I think coming back to the kids analogy with a um, Sufi poet, Karl Gibran, um, if you have kids, I don't have kids myself, but if you do have kids, you also have to, at some point, release them into the world and let them be their own person. You know, you can't just mm. always micromanage everything and let them become whoever they're supposed to become. And the same is true with music. I think you just like, You create it, you let it out there. And once it's out there, it's really out of your control what happens with it and how it does out there. And then I also want to forget about it. You know, I just want to keep my head down and work on the next thing and just be really present with that without just like looking, oh, how did this thing do that I just put out? And, you know, like constantly wait for something to happen around it. You know, it's more like put it out and let it be. And then eventually something comes back. It's amazing all the stories about this sort of thing. People, you know, say an actor who's decided to quit acting, but they get one audition and they say, they approach that audition with the attitude of, well, I'm quitting anyway, so I'll just go to this last audition and then call it a day. And then that ends up being the greatest audition they ever do. And they get a breakthrough <laughs> role. Right. You know, when a musician is dropped from a major label and they just go back to doing open mics because just for the love, not for the money. And then that ends up turning into their greatest success so it sounds like what you're describing is this funny thing it's not it's not so much not caring it's probably not the right way to describe it. it's just that healthy level of detachment from the uh, detachment yeah self. that's that's the right word i think it's quincy jones who said if you're thinking about money while you make music god walks out of the room yeah. and um that's nice of putting it you know it's just like you, you just need to be present with what you make you don't think about the implications of it or what you want to achieve with that and because all of this is like so ego driven you know it's always about essentially there's a lot of fear around it the fear of failure of not getting the approval of not making a lot of money with it whatever it is you know so you need, need to remove yourself from all that and um i guess that's what detachment is you know and detachment is also in, in buddhism one of the core teachings around mindfulness you know it's just like um non-judgmental um, attitude, detached, uh, and, and all that. So if you apply that around music or around any kind of creative endeavor or really any endeavor out there in the world, I think it's, it's more healthy in a way, both for the person that does it and for the people that are impacted by what it's done. No, no, of course. Um, so it's probably safe to say your last album, Full Circle, uh, feeds into all these things we're talking about I'm, i'm assuming this but i have quite a strong feeling <laughs> this is right yeah it does. It came up very intuitively i had no agenda with it whatsoever i literally just made it when i made it i realized it's good i like it i want to share it uh, it wasn't ego driven so i didn't need to make it under my name like if foam and scent would have never went anywhere you know at least it would have served the purpose of it being the vessel for the music to exist out there um, the fact that it did do well and um, that I did leverage it through like eventually disclosing it as a Robert Koch project 
was also just to make it accessible to more people, really. You know, it's, it's not so much like, oh, look at me, here's this great new project. Um, and I don't want to come across like I'm like all realized and like Buddha mind or whatever. This is all like a process, you know, like I still have my doubts and fears and my shadows and all that, you know, but it's just like good to catch myself sometimes and be like, oh, that thought just now, that was um, not really, <laughs> not really helpful, you know. Um, and I guess before, and that's the main difference before and after meditation, before I would just be identified with that thought, whatever it would be. And now I can just catch myself and be like, I can detach from that thought, you know, just make that conscious decision between that thought and, and, and me. So it's like two separate entities or an emotion, you know, I don't get identified with the emotion, whatever it is, could be like happiness or um, being upset or whatever. It's just like, I'm experiencing this emotion, but I'm not that emotion, you know? So that's again, the detachment that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Was there any fear in creating an album like that? Because often people create albums in a very conceptual way. They have this idea of a co whether it's a concept or just how how exactly they want it to sound. But it sounds like you just completely went spontaneous with this album, which is very freeing and lovely. But I guess, like you mentioned, I'm sure you had moments of thinking, oh, is this the right way <laughs> to do an album? Or should I, I be writing always. out? A bullet always, yeah, they always interject. I mean, that's when I meditate, it's also not like I'm without thought for 20 minutes. It's literally like a pendulum um, of like, here's a lot of thoughts and then I let them go. Here are a lot of thoughts and I let them go. You know what I mean? So it's like this back and forth. And the same is uh, true in the creative process. When I make something, I'm like really present. And I just make it and I'm just like excited and I'm enjoying it. But then all these thoughts seep in of like, oh, is this good enough? Should I put more work into this? the arrangement like enough whatever you know and actually form in sand you will notice that the songs are rather short um this is unusual for me because not that i make very long songs as robert koch but they're usually very detailed and thought out and conceptual and like i, I put a lot of love for the detail into it um and i'm not saying i didn't in form in sand but i kind of more let it be what it was rather than revisiting it like five times over and tinkering with the arrangement here and like making it better there. I think I kind of let it come up and then it was what it was. I maybe gave it one more work over and then I kind of left it there, you know, because I didn't want to kill the initial spark um, that was happening when I first made it. And with Robert Koch, it can be a little more heady, to be honest. It can be more conceptual. It can be more detailed. I'm just like fine-tuning it over and over again until it like just sits right. So form and sand has like uh, like the, sh the the charm of being a little more careless, but it's also conducive with the sound. You know, it's like a lot of his, a lot of these tape loops I uh, used, and I compressed the hell out of these tapes. So like a lot of the hiss and noise and wobbliness comes out. Um, it's like imperfection is sort of like the the mission statement of the project in a way. Yeah, I mean, so just musically speaking, how do you describe the original full circle um because i was going to say it sounded like there was a lot of analog goodness going into that um yeah um, was there some really cool synths you're using and is it essentially a hundred percent electronic album or were there some nice acoustic elements um it's, it's very acoustic actually it's a lot of stuff that i recorded to tape so it would be like piano <clears throat> or um even like some analog synth that i would run through um the tape and slow it down i have this um a tape recorder, which is um, modded with a with a little motor, which makes it um, easy to slow or speed up the tape. And if you slow it all the way down, like if you record with a, a motor slowing down the tape, it creates all these artifacts, which is kind of beautiful if you could then afterwards compress the hell out of, out of them because the tape is just like inching along at this really slow speed while recording a signal, be it a, um, a piano or a synth. Um, and then if you speed it up again, it just gives you all these artifacts and it's like a little more warbly, like the, the pitch would fluctuate and it's sort of showing up all these irregularities that are just true for the medium of the tape. And I just embraced that kind of imperfection of that sound on, on that record specifically. And um, yeah, so it's very analog. It's it's a lot of, eventually it all get gets edited in the computer, of course, but the recording was very analog and um, the source material is also 
feeling things through guitar pedals and amps and, you know, just like a lot of signals, a lot of like electricity running through things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned it was from earlier, just because the first time I heard it was from, I was just like, what is this? What, what's that hissing sound? And I can hear him breathing and the piano sounds too noisy. I don't like this. And after a few listens, I got used to it and realized the charm of that. Because before that, I was just used to sort of ultra produced music and thanks to Nils I now actively see yeah. music like yours where you've left all those imperfections in so it sounds like that was important for you as well to it was. have those yeah, lovely interesting how these things always um, change right like a couple of years ago everything would have been um, considered well produced if it was really clean and like perfect you know what I mean and then here we are <laughs> making things although we have all these tools to make things perfect we're embracing the imperfection again you know I guess it's maybe like a longing or like a nostalgia of like mm. this digital world which allows us to make everything perfect um, and then just like deliberately going the other way as a creative decision and, and being like oh remember how tapes used to be all hissy and wobbly and um I mean, I grew up with that. You know, I, I used to record um, a lot of my favorite albums on tape so I could listen to them in the car or wherever, you know. And the more you listen to them on tape, the more they would wear out. And <laughs> it's just like, mm. uh, that's, and the same is true for VHS tapes, you know, back in the day. You know, I would, as a kid, I would watch Star Wars on VHS. And the more I would watch the film, the more the, the, the picture and the sound would just like <laughs> look and sound bad. Um, but that's sort of what I associate with my childhood, you know, that kind of sensation of like, that's what Boards of Canada also um, perfected in their music, this kind of really bendy sounds, you know, that are just what happens to a medium like a VHS tape or a cassette when they're just like worn out and played too many times. Just so funny, isn't it? Because you get all these digital plugins now. I mean, digital plugins used to be about achieving that clean yeah. produced sheen of music but now you get all these plugins that are to help you sound sort of to emulate those kind of old compressor noises and all that kind of thing and music yeah. videos now you get music videos where it's meant to look like a vhs tape like you mentioned mm -hmm. Star Wars one, so it's just i don't know but yeah what do you think why what is bizarre that? You know, it's bizarre that you have like even like an instagram um, filter that emulates a VHS for your iPhone camera. You know what I mean? So it looks like all a little distorted or whatever. Again, I think it's like the longing for like that nostalgia of like that imperfection and the, because everything is so crisp and pristine. So I, mm. I feel like I can, that's, that's the only way I can make sense of it. It's, it's weird that digital algorithms need to emulate that now. Um, I mean, I went the other way by just like actually getting tapes in a secondhand store that have been recorded over many times and have a lot of um, <clears throat> texture to them. But clearly you can have plugins nowadays that make similar um, things on your, on your sound. And you have like piano libraries that have all these clicky sounds from the hammers built in, you know, so you sound like you're playing on a grandma upright piano that's really mm. creaky <laughs> so i don't know i can't explain you why the only way i can make sense of it is it's like the the longing for uh, the nostalgia that i spoke spoke about earlier that just yeah. makes you feel like that's the warmth that you're used to maybe from back in the day how things used to sound and you kind of long it and you, you want it want it back <laughs> yeah but then i recently read an article where John Hopkins was saying he basically just does everything in Ableton Live these days. So it's just an argument that will never stop, isn't it? Whether digital or analog. Oh, yeah. Better. I mean, I do everything. No right answer, is there? Well, um, that's just where everything goes into. But it's just nice to be off the computer sometimes and just fiddle around with this tape and run it through a guitar pedal. And then you sit down on the computer again and edit what you just recorded. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I guess it's 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 both fun. I mean, I would say like in percentage, how much time do I spend in Ableton versus not in Ableton? I think it's still 80% in Ableton and 20% somewhere in my room on the piano or on the tape machine or whatever, you know. So it's still mostly digital. It's still mostly Ableton. 
Um, no, but I just like to spice it up with like a little off-screen time playing with a few machines and toys mm. that I have. No, of course. Um, and so recently you released a full, do you more go of the word remix or reworks for the full circle um, release you put out? I know it's a very yeah, subjective thing. I like that because, because remix um, is just sometimes associated with like a dance remix and uh, a rework um, to me is sometimes um, speaking more to like a composer reimagining a piece, you know, that's why I use rework, but yeah, it's synonymous. It's like the same remix rework. It's just words. Uh, yeah. So um, obviously these are very common things for singles these days, but um, you decided to pursue a full album. So yeah. Can we just talk about the original inspiration for wanting to release a, an entire LP of um, reworks first? Yeah, I guess it's really just um, due to the fact that there was a lot of artists um, whose music I enjoy and felt um, like a certain kinship with um, that I wanted to um, like hear and see their perspective on, 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 the, on the music, you know. And it's it's people that also reached out and said that they like it, like the, um, the Form and Sand original record, like Slow Meadow, for example. He was very... Um, positive about the record on Twitter and like uh, he reached out on Instagram and I, I really enjoyed his music as well. So it was like clear to me that somebody that would be so articulate about supporting the project um, without me even like asking him to get involved um, that I would love to hear um, his like, um, yeah, point of view of reworking it. And that's just one example. And then it was others like Heinbach and uh, um, Alaskan Tapes and a bunch of other artists. Midori um, Hirano, you know, she's with uh, Erased Tapes. And um, mm -hmm. it just happens to be like a collection of like nine songs, which feels more like an album rather than a single collection. So I decided to make it a reworks album rather than just a few one-off remixes, reworks, you know. Mm. Yeah, and can you talk us through the process firstly of, um, I don't know, finding the artist to work with is the right word? or how that came about and also how did you um i don't know if you gave these artists briefs or what you asked them to do or how many for example how many stems you sent because i recently had a great interview with a fellow berliner of yours um called julian brock i don't know if you're familiar with him but he did a rework for or i think it was remix and it's all subjective isn't it um for grimes and she deliberately just sent the vocal stem she didn't send anything else to deliberately, you know, make him create something new rather than a sort of boring remix where he just added a yeah, yeah, exactly. ball to the floor, 808 right. drum and, you know, a few mm -hmm. different synths. Like she wanted something, a completely new take on the song. And um, yeah, I can imagine you were very keen for that to occur with this album. Mm -hmm. Some really new reimaginings of your music with Full Circle as well, I would have thought. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, the people that I chose, they work in a similar way that I do. Um, so they would also just take one element of the song and maybe record that again to their tape machine or whatever equipment they're working with. I know Heinbach um, used one element of the song and he slowed it down on his um, tape machine. And he sent me like even videos of, of his process while he was doing it. And then he played piano over that, you know, so it's like one element of my song slowed down on tape. And then he would just like, reharmonize it with like a different melody on piano and I thought that was just such a beautiful process and, and similarly Slow Meadow also just took one element recorded it on tape like found like a totally different approach to it and then also added strings to it and I can still see the song in there but it really feels like its own piece of music you know and then, that's what I love about reworks and I agree with um, Grimes when, when I rework um like a vocal piece, all I want is the a cappella. I never want to touch any of the other stems because with mm. a vocal song, that's what it re revolves around. You know, you just want to get the centerpiece, which is the vocal, then really reimagine like a whole different um, musical universe around that. And I think um, the reworkers all did that in their own way. Julian Marshall, he's a solo pianist. He just took a few details from one song and uh, wrote a solo piano piece sort of on top of it with that song like faintly playing in the back. So it feels almost like he's playing piano on top of 
just one element of the song. And it's, it's beautiful how these things are all, all very original, you know. They're not, like you say, like dance remixes. There, there's not a single clubby or dancey remix on there, which would have been easy to do, you know, because clearly that's also what does well on Spotify if you get like the dance remix or whatever. But I was just not interested in it musically, to be, to be honest, you know. No, no, of course. Um, in fact, we've had um, Tom Ashbrook on the podcast as well. He's one of the uh, reworkers on your... Right. Um, I'd, I'd love to just ask about... Um, sorry, and just for context, he's a Liverpool-based British composer slash... I know he loves using synths and analogue goodness himself. Um, in fact, he told us a great story about how he got his Roland Juno. He had to drive to this elderly gentleman's house and... He felt like he almost stole the scent because the guy was charging so little money. In a, oh, man. <laughs> and there was like literally three other people were inquiring about the scent. So he was basically in this race to get oh. it. Um, yeah. So, how, yeah, how was working with Tom? And yeah, what were your communications with him regarding reworking um, the song he was briefed to do? Yeah. So with Tom, it was interesting because um, we actually had like quite a bit of um, interaction in terms of reworking music he sent me stuff of him of like his work um i sent him uh, stamps from my record and um i think by now we have like two or three um mutual reworks going on you know i don't even know where they're all going i think one of them is going on one of his future releases like that's the rework i made for him and the one he made for me clearly came out on the reworks album so yeah there was like a very creative exchange with like a lot of um back and forth his music from my album his music from my album me doing something on his stuff, him doing something on mine. It was fun. It was like a very fluid process and um, yeah, very enjoyable. I really enjoyed what he made for, I think, Circle 26 it was that he chose. Um, Yeah, he just took it in a different direction. It's like almost like this journey with like a little build up towards the end and just beautiful to see how people reimagine the song because again it's still in there i can still hear it my original musical idea is definitely embedded in it in its dna if you will but it's its own thing you know it's its own it's almost like evolution if you want you know it's like genetic information that just gets um transmuted and like uh, transformed into something else and then it's this new organism again so i love it i love how creativity and, and collaboration works that way sometimes because a different mind will just like engage in such a different way with the same musical idea and um yeah that's why i really enjoy working with tom or with all the other composers on the reworks album yeah and considering you've said full circle and the full circle reworks it's also uh, sort of gut feeling, spontaneous, intuitive. Um, how have you found the reception and are you happy with the, the numbers even though you don't care about <laughs> the numbers? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, honestly, I'm surprised with the numbers because I had such low expectations around the project mm. in general. I literally just wanted to put it out. I, I'm happy that like Spotify got on board, especially with the... Um, um, with the reworks album too, but also with the original album, actually. I had like a lot of support on like bigger editorial playlists, which is always something as a musician, you kind of hope for these things to happen. And um, you don't really have a handle on it. You know, you can, of course, do your best in promoting it and all that, you know, but ultimately, especially these editorial, these bigger editorial playlists, they're just curated by people that choose to include your music or not, you know, so there's not much you can do about it. Um, so I'm very pleased that there was a lot of support for the record and the reworks album too. Um, but yeah, again, we talked about detachment, you know, I, I, I try not to make it mean too much to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased by it, but I also let it go because I know how fickle it is. You know, I might just release a new thing and it doesn't see any support. Can't really bank on this. You know, it's, it's almost like you wake up in the morning and either it's sunny or it's rainy. What can you do? You know, you're just like, you're happy when it's sunny, I guess. <laughs> and that's how I feel around the positive reception around the album. It's um, It's been pretty good. Amazing. Um, yeah, I just love, you touched on your kind of film, TV career. I'd just love to hear about some of your highlights um, from that so far. Sure. Yeah, so it started out with me just uh, licensing pre-existing music of my albums that I put out 
which were picked up for like TV shows or films or sometimes even um, movie trailers and, and ad campaigns and stuff. But in recent years, I started scoring, uh, writing to picture, meaning to say like um, actually working on the, on the film project. So I scored the TV show for Amazon Prime last year, which is um, Children from Bahnhof Zoo, which is based on the book from the 80s around Christiane F. So it plays in the 80s in Berlin. Um, it's actually the, the original movie from the 80s is what David Bowie wrote Heroes for. So he wrote the music mm. for the original movie back then. And they turned it into a TV show, which I happen to be the composer on, um, together with this other co-composer, Michael Kadelbach. Because it was mm -hmm. so much music. Uh, in an eight-hour show, we had to write like six hours of music in like four months. And that's like what? almost like 10 albums, you know, in four months. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the crazy thing is it's not like you just write it once for a picture, but you have to kind of rewrite it all the time because they change the edits. And in one scene, something you, you made work and you're like really proud of, and then they come up, come back with like the new edit and that scene is all butchered and whatever you made doesn't work anymore. So you have to start from scratch. And of course you get like notes from the director and the producer. So there's a lot of, You have to tolerate a lot of frustration as a composer. I'm, le I'm, I'm learning as I'm going. Because before it was just like my music was the way it was. It was licensed and then that was it. I just got the paycheck and approved of it. And, and that's the end of the story. With like being a composer for pictures, like a process, you know, taking into consideration other people's opinions and uh, all that. So I think the sweet spot for me is to be true to my artistic voice while still serving the director or the scene, you know? So that's like the balance and, and that's like sort of the art form, I think, without being like a work for hire gun that just like does whatever because I'm not good at that, to be honest. You know, I, I'm not one of those composers that can just do a romantic comedy and a horror movie and an action movie. And, you know, I'm just good at what I do at my sound and I can apply it to the scene and try to make it work. Um, but I'm not like a jack of all trades, you know, like you maybe need to be as if you're like a full-time working composer you just need to juggle whatever balls are thrown your way and i'm realizing mm. I'm, i'm coming more from the artist perspective so i have my own artist sound and um i'm good at that you know and i can apply that but i can't pretend i'm somebody who i'm not you know no amazing so what are some recent projects you worked on i see you worked on them We children. Yeah, I'm working on a, on a movie for. Um, sorry, I think we have a bit of a delay. That's I don't oh, no to interrupt. Um, I'm working on a movie for Netflix at the moment. It's um, going to come out this year, I think, or next year. I'm not even sure. And I'm starting on a video game score this week. Actually, I just uh, got off the call with the guys in the production company. Um, that's going to be like a fantasy, like a mystical fantasy. Um, role-playing game but also action that's going to be my first video game soundtrack so i'm very keen and excited about that oh cool and um yeah there's like a few other things on the horizon like a documentary actually from a british um, production company that i can't share too much about because it's not a done deal yet but yeah there's just like stuff on the horizon like more more scoring projects mm. potentially cool is that netflix film ultra secret as well and if you didn't say the name that's probably Yeah, at the moment it is. Yeah, because they, they don't even have like an official title for it, I guess. It's just working titles. So yeah, it's all NDA while I'm working on it. So I can't really share much about it. Okay, amazing. Thank you, Robert. And then a question right in the material world. I'd love to just ask about your studio. Yeah, just like sound cards and speakers, plugins, all that wonderful stuff that helps you make the music you make. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm using Hat Audio as a monitor speaker. Uh, Head Audio is the, the company founded by um, the guy who did Adam. I think they're, they're quite known, Adam Speakers. Mm -hmm. And um, he sort of founded his own company um, called Head, that's H-E-D-D. Um, they're not that well known, but I can really uh, um, recommend them. Really awesome um, monitors. Um, I'm using RME as a sound card, just the baby face, because I used to travel a lot and I just wanted to be light and mobile. Um, and then I have um, the Lyra 8, which is my favorite analog synth. It's like a Russian synthesizer by the company called Soma. Um, it's very interesting. It's like 
almost it wants something from you. You don't only want something from it, it also wants, wants something back. So it's not like a Juno where you're like playing a chord and you're just like, I want this pad and you dial it in. The Lyra is a little bit more, oh, okay. So it's what, what's going on? You know, <laughs> you're just like pressing record and like catching moments of, of randomness seemingly, but there's a lot of beauty in these random moments and you can just go back and find the good nuggets in there. So I just enjoy working with this machine a lot. It's very intuitive. I have a Juno also. I have a Roland JX. Um, I have this modded tape machine I told you about that lets you slow down and speed up the tape. And um, yeah, just a few fun pedals. The Fairfield Shallow Water is one pedal that I really enjoy. I run that mm. through a Music Man amp <clears throat> and um, a few guitars and basses here as well. I'm not really a bass player or a guitarist myself, but the guy I rent the studio from he owns a lot of guitars and he sort of left them in here for me to use, which is great. So I'm actually starting to play instruments that I don't actually play and just get sounds out of them, which is also a lot of fun. Oh, wonderful. Um, with your RME interface, is that, yeah, what was the process of finding a way to that? Do you use other interfaces before? And yeah, what do you like about the RME one? I mean, I like the AD, um, like the digital converters a lot. Um, in general, I've, I started with an army, I gotta say, you know, I had the um, the bigger one, I forgot the name of it, um, with more ins and outs. Um, but then I switched to Babyface just because, again, like I was, um, before COVID, I was touring and, and traveling quite a bit. So it just seemed to be handy and I was working in remote places also. I just needed to be able to work wherever really. So my setup became more and more mobile. Back in Berlin, I had more analog synths, like the um, Quark, uh, Poly6, etc. But moving to LA, I just like slimmed down my whole setup a lot, you know. So I'm just like working um, in the box with like a lot of libraries. And I only in recent years started to gear up again, like Lyra and the Juno again. Um, but for a couple of years, I was just like in the box entirely, which was also fun because it's so convenient in a way you know and i mean there's a lot of great um libraries i like the stuff that spitfire audio for example released mm-hmm. and and a few others so that, that's that's great stuff to also work with in the box yeah no amazing um do you have any favorite plugins that you particularly go to i will say my favorite one is probably the pro q3 from um fab filter mm. it's just like the best um eq uh, that i know of and it's pretty much on every single track um, in every arrangement <laughs> because it just allows you to carve out the frequencies so detailed and then also sidechain the frequencies so you can like declutter like the mid-low, um, you know, um, problems that sometimes exist around the mids. You can just like make them more transparent and it's just like a really well done um, EQ. So yeah, that's my favorite one. Cool. Did you mention your speakers, sorry, that you're using currently? I'd love mm-hmm. to hear about those. Yeah, it's the Head Audio, uh, HDDD. Oh, uh, yeah. So I see, yeah, yeah. Also made. That's the one from, from the guy who did Adam speakers before. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a medium-sized pair, just like good enough for my room here because it's not a huge room I'm in. The studio I had in Berlin was more of a control room and the recording booth, you know, with a window through it and stuff. Mm. The setup I have here is more, um, it's, it's, it's smaller, but it, it has a view. You know, I'm looking out <laughs> into the green and I see um, valleys and, and, and palm trees and stuff. So it's actually very conducive to me because before it was just like this hole with no windows. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just I do spend so much time in the studio that now getting natural light, some sometimes really feels like um, it's taking less energy from me being on the computer for so long, just mm. because I can have the view to the outside world and get some natural light. So that feels really good. Yeah, amazing. Oh, thanks so much, Robert. And yeah, so in terms of what's next, I know you've mentioned sort of game and film projects. Have you got your next uh, purely artistic project in mind already? I do, yeah. And um, I'm actually happy to announce it here. Um, with you for the first time because nobody really knows about it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to rework my 
album, The Next Billion Years, which was the last Robert Koch um, studio album. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to rework it through the lens of Foam and Sand. So I'm just like re-recording a lot of these orchestral recordings to tape. And again, just like doing the Foam and Sand kind of treatment, slowing things down and going for a minimal kind of noisy approach. Um, that's just so much I recorded back in 2019 when I was in Estonia and I recorded the orchestra there. And I oh, felt cool. there was so much potential left on the table. It was too much for just one album. So I'm now revisiting that material and it's going to be a new Reworks album again. But basically me as Foam and Sand reworking Robert Koch and that's going to come out in May. Oh, amazing. That's very exciting. Um, and is that... This time, that's you reworking your own music rather than... Exactly, yeah. So it's going to be Robert Koch reworked by Foreman Sand, who is also me. (laughs) Yeah, the alter ego, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, And finally, while the red carpet's still out, if say if someone had never heard anything you've ever done, where would you um, point them as a perfect sort of introduction to your music, would you say? That's a really hard question, you know. (laughs) I would always want to point them to the latest thing I put out because it feels like the most... um, relevant to where i'm at right now in my life mm-hmm. um it's almost like if i met somebody and they didn't know who i was i wouldn't start like with like childhood or whatever i would probably just tell them about what i'm up to these days mm. and the same is true for music i would just like point them towards like the latest releases just because they reflect <clears throat> where i'm at as a person and as an artist most accurately as a snapshot in time i guess so yeah that would be my choice Oh, amazing. Oh, Robert, thanks so much for uh, talking to us. It's been absolutely amazing. Um, lots yeah, of great it's been a pleasure. Thank yeah, you so much. Lots of great life advice in there as well as <laughs> music as well. So brilliant. Right. Yeah, well, I'm happy to share, you know, because it's like <laughs> live and learn for myself. And, oh, of course. Uh, it's, always, it's always good to, to be able to share a little bit. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Have a, have a good day in LA. Yeah, you too. Talk soon, Adam. Bye-bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.